Alright, let us begin. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts today, and of course always as we strive to learn what you wish us to know through Holy Scripture. And on this, the last meeting of our current session, we ask that you help us to really pull together all of the message that Isaiah has in the first portion of the book of Isaiah. So give us uh, the opportunity, give us the strength, the courage to kind of speak out and participate in this meeting. So we thank you for this time together, Heather. We thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. Today we're going to have a little bit of a difference in our meeting. Uh, it's going to be a three-part meeting, you might say, or even a four-part if we wish to get into a little discussion on the next session. Uh, what I'd like to do is to have you, as I mentioned last week, volunteer what you got out of this session, what you consider to be the most important points of it. Then next, I would like to do a summary uh, narrative of the entire 39 chapters, which I plan to do in less than 39 minutes. Uh, and I will give you a copy of it at that time. And then after that, I want to talk about a little booklet that I'm going to give you, uh, which I hope you will read between now and our next session so that we can uh, talk about it then. Uh, it is not something that is actually connected with the next section directly, but it is connected with uh, what I consider an important issue of everyday life. So, let us begin. Uh, what I'm going to do is turn this around so that we can write on here some of these important points that you're going to be telling me. All right? Sorry for not being a little better prepared. Oh, by the way, you have men working here in the next session on the other side of this partition on the sound system. So if you hear banging and whatever, and they might have to get into the, this little closet here. So we just have to be patient and, and sort of uh, deal with that. Okay? All right. Anyone want to volunteer what they feel is an important point that they got out of this session. You ready? Very good. Yeah, all right. All right. Dick? I see a two-part message. One, he was talking to the leaders, but I think that's to all of us. That we have to be charitable and look out for society. And two, that God is ever forgiving. Okay. Um, all right. Does that cover it? All right. Who else? Jane? Oh. Okay, very good. Uh-huh. 
Okay. Oh, okay. Very good. Um, I like the last one. Yes, Vito. Tremendous patience. Yeah, only a God could be patient with the people at those at that time. Right. Carl? I find it a very subtle message. I don't want to be part of it. I don't worship. Looks like a big thing. I don't worship. But in today's time, any little thing could be an idol worship. My worship of the things that I have, the time that I spend for something else. I worship these things, and they seem to me they take me away on my focus on God, because I I am more centered on the material things of this world, and that's what the world is now. There's too many distractions, and the worship goes on the things, not on God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, idol worship, uh, which was a big thing at the time of Isaiah, but. We have just as big, and that's I think Cora's point here. We have just as big, if not bigger, uh, problem with idol worship today. But it comes in the form of golf and sports and television uh, and worshiping people, sports people, Hollywood people, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, it blows my mind at times when I see on the news how people can get so worked up over uh, a sports issue or uh, some kind of material meaning or waiting in line for hours for a, a store to open up so you can be the first person to make a purchase, that kind of thing. Those are the idol worships that we have today. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, actions instead of uh, worship. In fact, both, and as I think Vito pointed this out as well, Isaiah and Christ both say that worship of God without sincerity, without showing it in your actions towards your fellow man, is not acceptable. The worship is not acceptable if it does not reflect in your actions and your speech towards your fellow man. Very good. Yeah. Anyone else? Yes, June? about 
things and commandments and things like that. And now I see that in this time and day, we have we still have the commandments, but we still have things to help us, like the Jewish people had, and that is our Bible, our worship, our uh, our church, our masses, uh, what we do for the poor now, and things like that. So it's to me, it's saying this is all went on back, you know, way back there, but it's actually still going on today. So this is where I want to go. I don't want to follow what the Jewish people kept falling off and doing. I want to stay on the side of the Lord and do what I'm supposed to be doing. Amen. Very good. Yes. The message really hasn't changed. Uh, people don't seem to get the message. Uh, or the problem that we had with the people at the time of Isaiah is they ignored God. Because of the prosperity that they had, they felt, well, who needs God? We've got everything we need, and we're living comfortably. Uh, and don't you find the same thing today? The same thing is really happening today. People uh, are ignoring God because they feel that, who needs him? You know, there's the little story about the scientist that now said, well, God, we don't need you. We can even create man, uh, human beings, you know. We created Dolly, and now we can create man. And so we really don't need you anymore. You, you know, you can go off and do your own thing. And uh, the Lord says, well, uh, let me see, for example, what can you do? How can you create? <clears throat> so the man goes to pick up some dust, you know, dust you came and dust you shall return. And the Lord said, oh, wait a minute. That's my dust. You get your own. <laughs> but, you see, the, the mentality of the average person today is really the same. We don't need you, God. We've got everything we really need. We're comfortable. Or, in many cases, you have almost the other extreme. You've never done anything for me, oh God, so why should I bother? You've never done this or that for me, so why should I pay any attention to you? I'm going to do my own thing. So you have, you know, the two extremes which really, unfortunately, result in the same ending. So, that's important. I'm glad that you got so many different points of view, but they are all good, they are all accurate, uh, and they really, I think, focus in on what Isaiah is trying to say. Wake up, people. The Lord, the God of heaven and earth, is really the God of all things including everything that you say, do, want, have, etc. And without loyalty to him, that will all be taken away from you in one form or another, particularly when you die. Then what have you got? You don't even have my love, my friendship, and my home to live in forever. So, the whole idea of listening to not only Isaiah, but all of the prophets, is very, very important. They all have basically the same message, tailored only in difference to the time and the location. And we will see that when we get into the next session of Isaiah, from chapters 40 through 66. It's a different time period. The culture has changed tremendously. The ideas in the minds and the hearts of the Jewish people have changed, you know, because between the time of the end of 1st Isaiah and we pick up 2nd Isaiah in the Babylonian exile is almost a 100 years. 
So obviously you can tell that it's not the same person that is writing. And you'll see that in the style of writing is much different as well. Uh, but the point that is still made there is loyalty to God and putting God and his message for you as an individual first. And everything else, when you do that, will be put in its proper place. You will not be denied those things that you need and want and work for. But if you put God first, then all of those other things will come along in its proper time and order. <coughs> so many people are afraid to kind of let go. And even in the Gospels, which of course came along seven or eight hundred years later after first Isaiah, it talks about putting God first. And unless you put God first, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, a lot of people will say, well, my, my family comes first. My spouse comes first. My children come first. Why should I put God first? Well, God is not saying to, to downplay. In fact, one of the Gospels, it says, unless you hate your mother and father, uh, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm sort of abbreviating that. Uh, but the word hate is there. Uh, remember, you can't take that literally, because as we've said so many times, exaggeration is used to emphasize in scripture because there was no way to highlight or capitalize or whatever uh, particularly when you're uh, giving something verbally which all of the scriptures were originally given verbally <coughs> with a few exceptions and so the word hate is there to cause somebody to wake up what it really means is Putting God first in the order of priority in your mind and in your heart. And then everything else will come as a result of your understanding what God wants of you and what your place is in God's plan of salvation. Once you do that, then everything else that you receive will be part of that plan of salvation for you. And therefore, once you realize that and accept that, you can be probably the most contented person. And I use the word content rather than happy, because happy to me is, is, just doesn't have the right context. But contentment is so much more important than fleeting happiness. All right? To be satisfied with what you have, who you are, and where you are, because God is first in your life, is a tremendous deal. And as the commercial says on television, I guarantee it. All right. Anything else that anyone would like to voice? Yes. Prayer. Right. Uh, you're right, and, and that's a very good, good point, Connie. When you pray, be specific. 
have something in mind. Have your role in God's plan of salvation in mind as well. I mean, you can pray with all sincerity to win the lottery, but that doesn't mean that that's what God wants for you. Okay? So, they got to be connected. Alright? Prayer is so important, and as Connie pointed out, being specific is important also. God is sitting there waiting. Alright? I hear you. I know you want to pray. But just reciting the Our Father and the Hail Mary is not quite what I'm expecting. Let me know what you want. And I will help you. Alright? But at the same time, prayers of thanksgiving are in order as well. I mean, we celebrate Thanksgiving next week, but don't let it be once a year type of thing. Alright? Let me give you a little uh, analysis of, or example, I should say, of uh, something that happened to me many years ago. I used to be involved in the Charismatic Renewal Program, uh, which, of course, fostered small prayer groups. Uh, about the same time, I took a job as the Chief Financial Officer of a series of hospitals in Southern California. We had eight, eight or nine hospitals at the time. Everything, and of course, I was, as I said, responsible for all of the financial end of these eight or nine hospitals, and we paid for all of the bills when we would purchase things um, and utilities and everything else out of one central source for all of the hospitals. Well, when I started, there were tremendous problems. Uh, we had 15 or 20 people in this department sorting out these bills and paying them. Uh, well, through an audit that I had done, uh, I found out that they were paying the same bill two and three times because it got passed around. Then I also found out that there were a lot of, uh, let's say, uh, unscrupulous uh, people out there who would submit the same invoice two or three times, and it also would got paid. Uh, so we did an audit, but the thing that I really wanted to happen, and I did, was I started a prayer group within the hospital from people of various departments, primarily my own, uh, but it was all volunteer, and it was not just Catholic, it was anyone who wanted to attend. But within six months, I was able to pare these 20 positions down to five. Because what God helped us to do was to see what the problem was and how to resolve it. But we were specific because the prayers that we offered through this prayer group was specifically for the improvement of the hospital, which was a non-profit hospital, so that we could better serve the public. All right. But it was important that we stuck to that one specific request. And then with the idea that after we felt that we had accomplished what we set out to do, then other uh, requests, prayer requests, uh, could be entered and offered. All right. So, uh, being specific with your prayer is extremely important. Okay. Any other one comments on Isaiah? Yes. Well, all right, I have to... What Anna is saying here is why did they call uh, chapters 40 through 66 Isaiah? In other words, why were these two or three additional uh, men or, or groups of people, we don't know for sure, uh, added on to first Isaiah? Well, the answer is we don't know. 
<laughs> to be honest, we don't know. There's no one that can give you uh, a definite answer. The logic behind this is they're all in the same vein, you might say. Uh, they're all asking for the same kind of thing. Uh, the language is very closely related in style, you might say. Not that uh, chapters 40 through 66 are in the poetic format that the first part of uh, Isaiah is. But there is a lot of relationship, you might say. And also, the people to whom it's addressed originally are pretty much the same. So, unfortunately, I can't give Anna a, or anyone else a direct answer or explanation as to why uh, these other chapters were added on. We really don't know. I think I would add to that it was a continuation of the same message situation about Jerusalem. Yes. And You're right. Dick pointed out something very important, that it all centers around the idea of Jerusalem being the important point uh, and center connection here between all of these messages or chapters. Yeah. Another thing that happened in the probably for me was that uh, they uh, the prophets gave some very specific advice on politics. Uh, don't uh, get surrounded by enemies and then deal with them. That's right. Yeah, don't join the enemies because uh, they really become your enemy. Yeah. All right. You're right. Okay. Um, what I want to do is I got a little bit more formal summary here, which I'm going to pass out. Um, no, that word pass out doesn't sound right. You know, if all right, thank you. Thank you. All right. Yeah, you just got to be careful when you're teaching, you know, how to use your words. You know, pass those around. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Now, one of the things that we have to understand is that in First Isaiah, In First Isaiah, you have two problems, two major problems. One is caused by the people's behavior, the people's ignoring God and departing from the teachings of Moses the teachings of the Ten Commandments. And then the other problem is God trying to bring these people back and waking them up. So, let's go through this. <coughs> Excuse me. The prophet Isaiah is said to have served God as prophet, that is, the spokesperson for God, not somebody who tells the future, although that may be included during the reign of four kings of Judah in the latter part of the 8th century. These were Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. There were other prophets serving God about the same time in other areas, and these were Amos, Hosea, and Micah. What I'd like you to do over the uh, Christmas holidays, when you have nothing else to do, of course, <laughs> is to read Amos and Hosea, particularly, they are not very long. You can read them in less than an hour. Uh, but they will give you a lot of the background of what is going on at this time. And I think help to strengthen all of these things that you mentioned up here on the board. Okay. The problems confronting Israel and Judah uh, came from within the Jewish people themselves 
and from the neighboring nations surrounding them. The principal cause and target were the prosperity of both Israel and Judah and their geographical locations on the Mediterranean Sea, which made them advantageous to the surrounding nations that wished to overpower uh, Israel and Judah. And this was a time when the big nations wanted to get bigger and take advantage of the small nations. It was sort of a um, case of the strong getting stronger and the poor getting poorer, which we <coughs> will mention here. It says the causes of corruption from within the leadership of the Jewish people and thus the whole population was the prosperity that stemmed from the golden age of Judaism, which began with King David and King Solomon. As the people became wealthy and comfortable in their daily lives, they forgot the God of Israel and the Ten Commandments. They neglected the poor, the widows, and the orphans, and other directives that Moses had prescribed. It was a blatant case of the rich getting richer and the poor multiplying and getting poorer. In addition, apostasy and intermarriage were becoming common and Judaism was fast becoming overshadowed by pagan influences, particularly in Israel, the northern kingdom, the United States, and <coughs> all of the world. <laughs> Don't you see the same thing happening today? Uh, that's why, as we mentioned up here, the message of Isaiah really fits today's society just as much as it did 3,000 years ago. Not only different tribes, but outside of the Jewish nation altogether. One example, uh, if you want to read rather an interesting case about what intermarriage has <clears throat> done to damage the Jewish people, although this happened a little bit before Isaiah's time, read the story of Ahab and Jezebel in the first book of Kings. All right? And in the book of Samuel, there it runs throughout Samuel and First Kings, okay? It's an interesting story. Uh, Jezebel was not a Jew. She was from a different tribe, uh, a different nation, I'm sorry. Uh, and Ahab was a very weak king. She came in and really took over and brought in her own faith, her own religion, a pagan religion, and forced her husband to accept that, too. Uh, they both died in a very strange, very strange way, uh, and their ending was, well, I'll leave it up to you, okay? Uh, it's in, interesting, but very interesting, okay? That's what I mean by intermarriage, okay? Uh, well, the first and second book of Kings and the first book of, I'm sorry, first and second book of Samuel and first Kings. But you have to look, there's, uh, these same people are mentioned in other books of the Bible, such as Chronicles as well. Yes. That's right. But if you bring them into the faith, then it's okay. So you have all of these internal problems, okay? Now, the external problems were going to happen anyways, and so God uses these external problems to try to wake up the Jewish people. That's how Isaiah got involved. 
Isaiah was God's messenger, all right, trying to get the people through the leaders to stay out of the politics here. And remember, they didn't want uh, an alliance between Ahaz, the king of Judah, with Assyria. But he went ahead and did it anyways. Okay. So it's in the process of trying to get the Jewish people to return to him with all their heart, which is a theme that runs through uh, the prophet Hosea. God permitted the neighboring superpowers of Assyria and later Babylon to overrun and conquer first Israel and later Judah. It was his way of waking the people up to the fact that their infidelity with the hope of their returning to him as their divine protector, which was part of the first covenant. Remember the first covenant that was made with Abraham and then down, renewed several times down through the years, promised descendants, land, and protection. God's divine protection. That comes through quite often uh, in First Isaiah when God is constantly trying to protect Jerusalem, which he does up to a point. But finally, as we will see in the next session, finally, Jerusalem gets involved and is uh, eventually destroyed as Syria was, Assyria and the northern um, Israel was. The first great crisis was the Syro-Ephraimite War. The northern kingdom of Israel formed an alliance with Syria against Assyrians and wanted King Ahaz of Judah to join them. Ahaz refused and instead asked Assyria for a safety alliance. The result was Israel lost out to Assyria and Judah became the subject or vassal, you might say, of Assyria. This was the occasion for the famous uh, uh, Emmanuel prophecy that we often hear at Christmas time. And so <clears throat> next month when you will hear this at Sunday Mass a couple times, and if you go to daily Mass, you'll hear it quite often, uh, the whole story about uh, Isaiah promising Ahaz uh, this idea of a virgin shall bear a son and name him Emmanuel, and he shall be powerful, and so forth and so on. That has nothing to do with Jesus Christ. However, the words would make it sound because it mentions um, a virgin. And it implies a virgin birth. Well, that is not what it is. And that's not what it means. Alright? But over the years, Catholics have assumed that this is in reference to Jesus Christ. And it sounds like it is, but it isn't. All right? First of all, in the original Hebrew, the word virgin is not used. It is referred to, or she is referred to as a young woman, who is probably Ahaz, one of Ahaz's wives. All right. who uh, was up until this time barren. But we have no way to know for sure. All right. So, you know, it's, it's one of those nice little stories that kind of got way out of hand and it took on a meaning of its own that isn't there. A decade later, in 722 B.C., Israel rebels against Assyria. This is the northern kingdom, rebels against Assyria, 
and Assyria destroys Samaria, the capital, and most of Israel's population is deported to Assyria, never to be heard of again, and Israel ceases to exist. Now, that, sound, that sounds mighty harsh, and it is. But remember, these people were warned not only by Isaiah, Well, better late than never. <laughs> and she's got coffee waiting for you down there. I'm all I'm teasing. The whole idea of the people of the northern kingdom of, uh, of Israel being carted off to Assyria, never to be heard of again. Sounds harsh, as I said, but you have to remember that they were warned over and over and over, not only by Isaiah, but also by Ahaz, uh, Amos, rather, and Hosea, and the Deuteronomist. This is entirely outside of the prophets now, but there was the small group of Deuteronomists who were faithful to God through the Jewish faith and brought together all of the writings of Moses, putting them into a book called uh, the Book of the Law, which later became the Book of Deuteronomy. All right. So you had all of these influences, and yet the people still rebelled against God and brought in all kinds of pagan influences. And so they were totally wiped out. Now, if you say, well, a lot of those people must have been good, faithful people. Yeah, that's true. We have to admit that. That's a possibility. But God has told us in moral, in many places, that if you should lose your life for the sake of God, the sake of the Gospels, or the furtherance of God's plan of salvation, you shall be rewarded in heaven. All right. So that the end result will be the glorious uh, reuniting with God, right? So, we have to look at it that, yes, there is the possibility that some faithful people got swept up in this uh, only to be uh, punished on earth, but to enjoy everlasting life with God in heaven. And that's, of course, what we are all striving for. In 713 B.C., the Philistine city of Ashdod, which was not part of Judah at the time, even though it was in the southern area, uh, with the encouragement of Egypt, rebelled against the Assyrians who took control of Ashdod. This is the occasion of the story where Isaiah walks nude for three years to show how futile both sides will be if they do not call upon the God of Israel, for help. It's an unusual way of um, making an emphasis, but I did tell you, you know, there were extremes. In 701 B.C., Hezekiah revolted against Assyria. Remember, Hezekiah was a king of Judah, and there was this control, even though Assyria had not conquered or overrun the southern kingdom, there was this control, and Hezekiah now revolts and provokes the famous campaign of uh, their king at the time, who is Sennacherib, uh, who boasted that he would shut up Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. However, faithful to his word, God protected Jerusalem with a miracle that caused Sennacherib 
Sinatra to uh, retreat, and he was assassinated shortly thereafter. He was assassinated by his own two sons, and a third son then took over as king of Assyria at the time. Throughout all of the above action, Isaiah is God's intermediary between the leaders, the people, and even the enemy. First Isaiah's service to God seems to end with the envoy from Babylon appearing on the scene and the threat of another invasion of Judah and a foreshadowing of the Babylonian exile. But this is almost a hundred years before the Babylonian exile actually happened. From all of the above, we must see that God's plan of salvation is behind all of the political action. God uses the military might of the enemy to set Israel and Judah on a better course. When the leaders of the northern kingdom continue to disobey, God let the enemy conquer completely. A little later, the southern kingdom of Judah followed suit, but with one small exception. A small remnant was permitted to return to Judah to rebuild Judaism, Jerusalem, and the temple. But even then, it was only for a little while. The time and events between Hezekiah and the end of the Babylonian exile, which are covered by 2nd and 3rd Isaiah, will be examined and discussed in our next session, beginning January the 29th. Does that help you put it together? I know it's a kind of a, a large mouthful, you might say, but the whole idea is that unless we see not only all of these events that and, and items and points of interest, uh, we have to kind of look at how it is all brought together and the purpose. Nick? In the author's commentary on page 42, he's got a section, Israel and Judah reunited. And he indicates in there that the remnants of Israel were united with Judea in Jerusalem. So that the implication I see is that Israel was not totally, as a state it was gone, but its people were assumed by Judea. It was, but long after the Babylonian exile. Right. Uh, let me see how I explain this. The northern kingdom disappears in 722 B.C. All right. As an entity. All right. Other people are brought in from Assyria, you know, the ne'er-do-wells and uh, the riptrap and jailbirds, etc. Uh, they become the Samaritans, the hated Samaritans, and that's why uh, the Jewish people at the time of Christ so disliked the Samaritans. After, you know, 700 uh, years, their hate hadn't changed. In fact, it had only gotten worse but they probably couldn't explain why. Uh, but that's beside the point. After the Babylonian captivity, this small remnant does come back and reestablishes Judaism in Jerusalem. In fact, the king of Persia by that time, not Babylon or Assyria, which are both gone, uh, the king of Persia then actually helps the rebuilding of Jerusalem through the efforts of Nehemiah. Okay. But that doesn't happen until the early part of the 4th fourth century. Yeah. Uh, B.C. Okay. Uh, and gradually, the land, the area that was Israel, is reclaimed. But there is no... Uh, great war or anything that does that. 
they sort of just migrate back up into the territory that was always there. Because of the claim of Abraham that that land was given to them by God himself. And of course, you have the Arab people who make the same claim. And that is why the friction between the Arabs or the Muslims and the Jewish people have existed for 4,000 years. Any other points or questions? Any comments? Pretty much so. But then you see shortly after uh, 722 BC, Assyria then was captured and conquered by Babylon. And so Assyria ceased to exist as a superpower. Yes. Yeah. But they could have cared less. So, Samaria drifted along for quite a while. No. No. So, they they did, the remnants that were there and the Assyrians that came in, they weren't faithful or close to the Jewish. No. No. If you go to the story of the women at the well in John's Gospel, It gives you a little bit of background about uh, that particular woman and her culture, but it reflects uh, on the past culture as well. Now, the uh, Assyrians that were brought in tried to assimilate a little bit of the Jewish faith, and so they became sort of, you might say, half-Jewish. But that was even more offensive to the Orthodox Jewish people of the South. And that is why there was such a hatred developed because they said they tried to mimic uh, the Jewish people of the South but didn't do it full-hearted. Therefore, they were not Jews. Yeah. Black sheep. Black sheep of the family, you might say. Whatever. Okay. It's, a, it's an interesting uh, background story. Any other questions? Okay. I hope, well, I, I don't hope. I know that you got something out of this. You've told us this way. So I appreciate that. Now, here's what I would like to do. Thank you. All right. Now, this is not a very long book, but it speaks to the people, it speaks to you and the general people of the United States actually speaks to every people, all people all over the world, but primarily the United States. Uh, it is written and promoted and published by Catholic Answers out of Southern California. Uh, it has a foreword here and <coughs> by Cardinal Raymond Burke. And there are recommendations from various Catholic prominent sources. It talks about really the things that Isaiah talked about and all of these things here. The thing that I would like you to do is to read this over a period of time and really see how it fits our society today. And it speaks to us about what we can and should do. The one thing that I want to warn you about is that in the beginning there are some quotations from Pope Benedict XVI and Pope John Paul II out of some of the legal documents that the church wrote at their time. There's some rather large words in there, and it gets a little confusing. Don't 
let that throw you. A lot of people might stop at these big $5 words and, uh, you know, miss the point. Don't let that stop you. Try to understand what they are saying and then go on because it does get easier uh, after the first chapter. All right. It's important, I think, that we as Catholics must do something about the way our society is going today. And prayer is probably the most important thing we can do, but there is other things that we can do as well. I think we have to unite against, first of all, television and the programs that are coming out, which seems to glorify all kinds of uh, mayhem, uh, sex, uh, killings, random killings without any remorse, uh, without any thought as to the moral issues. The whole idea of morality uh, has totally been abandoned, I think, by the television and Hollywood people. Uh, the glorification of uh, prominent people from both the entertainment industries and the sports industry has gotten totally out of hand. Uh, and people seem to be at a loss as to how to redirect their interests, uh, their appetites, etc. Okay. The whole idea of God seems now to be put down. And that stems all the way right from our government with the uh, almost uh, laws against talking about God and Jesus Christ in any uh, form. <clears throat> and we've got to start writing letters to congressmen and to the president himself uh, because he is as much to blame as anyone else. As our leader, uh, I think we have a leader who is leading us down the garden path uh, to a pagan nation. I don't want to get on a soapbox and um, start preaching uh, politics and so forth, but I think this book will do it in a better way than I could. Okay. So I strongly recommend that you each take um, your, the time to read this and to reflect on what it is saying and at the same time, ask God how you can contribute towards reversing uh, the situation. Any problems? Anyone have a problem with doing that? Um, I don't think he would know. Um, yeah. Anyways. It seems like the thought crossed my mind as you were talking. Television has come a long, long way from the day of Bishop Fulton Sheen. The programs that were on the air in those days. That's right. Well, you know, even even. Even the programs that are on today, for example, I used to like Law and Order. I used to like Bones. But they've gotten so graphic uh, and so blatantly ignoring the morality of what is going on that I can't watch those programs any longer. And I will not watch them. Um, so, and then I understand that there's... Uh, some programs coming out that are taking sex to the, the, the ultimate level, you might say, or virtually displaying anything that isn't left to your imagination. So, um, 
you know, we cannot continue to do that. As you pointed out, television has advanced technologically so far that it is really saying almost as I did to my little in my little joke to God, we don't need you any longer. You know, we can do all this less and so on our own. And that, unfortunately, uh, puts us in a, a very precarious position. You know, folks, Francis has had a chance to comment on this whole uh, movement or, or sort of thing. Has there been anything from him yet? Well, I don't know. I can't, know I can't say for sure. I, I can't say for sure, one way or the other. Yeah. Now, Ruth's question was, has Pope Francis commented on the state of affairs, you might say? And I really don't know, but I can imagine what his comments would be if he did. Yeah. yeah. Much so. Yes, Cora? Yeah. Well, you recognize that the title in itself is an oxymoron. You know? Relativism in this case is something, uh, let me give you an example. You may have heard somebody say, well, all Christian religions are the same, aren't they? So why should I be concerned? Well, all Christian religions are not the same. The Catholic Church is the one true church founded by Christ. All of the others are breakaway. Up until the time of Martin Luther, with one exception, which I'll mention in a minute, up till the time of Martin Luther in the 15th century, or 16th century, uh, everybody who professed to be a Christian was a Catholic. All right? The only exception is the divide between the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic Church. But nevertheless, everybody was a Catholic. It is only the those that broke away, beginning with Martin Luther and the others that followed, that have created all of these other Christian sects. All right? And you cannot say that they are all equal, because they are not. Once you break away from the true faith of the church, first of all, you lose the benefit of the sacraments, which is the way, the method that the church dispenses the majority of graces. It's through the sacraments. The other churches do not have that, with one exception, and that's baptism. Okay? Only the recognized Christian churches, baptism, are recognized by the Catholic Church. None of the other so-called sacraments in these other churches are recognized. They do not have the Eucharist. They do not have the sacrament of reconciliation and so forth. So you can't say they're all the same. That's saying like all automobiles are the same. Alright? Now, I'm not saying that the other Christian churches will not get you to heaven or cannot get you to heaven. I'm not saying that. But they won't get you there in the same way that the Catholic Church will. Okay? That's like saying all automobiles are the same. No. The automobiles, you know, have different luxuries, different qualities, different dependabilities, etc., etc. And they all might get you, you know, to wherever you're going, but not in the same way. Uh, that's a bad analogy because there is nothing that can compare when in this particular purpose to the Catholic Church. So, what we've got to do here, 
is to protect our church and protect our people by doing something about the trend of morality today. And I can't give you an answer as to what that is. But there is an answer. Most of it has to come from God. But he is leaving the door open for each one of us to participate in that. St. Paul tells us in his letter to the Colossians, I make up in my own body what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. This is Paul saying that. And when I first heard that, I got kind of upset. What could be lacking in the teachings and the sacrifices of Christ? But if you read on and really understand what Paul is really saying is that Christ suffered to open the door to heaven so that we could be reunited with God. But he left the door open a little for each one of us to participate in that same sacrifice. And it is only by the efforts that we contribute to that sacrifice do we get ourselves into heaven. It's not a free ride. You might hear some people say, well, I was saved on such and such a day and therefore I don't have to worry about anything else. I was saved. Right? You've all heard that. Well, salvation is not a one-time, one-date thing. Salvation is a continuing process. And that is what we teach through the Catholic Church. Any questions? Okay. If there are no questions, we will end the session for this year, and we will see you next year, if not sooner. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you for the many graces and blessings that you have showered upon us during these ten sessions. We ask that you continue to bless us and our families with a greater understanding of your plan of salvation and how we fit into it. Help us then to not shirk our duties, but help us to really understand what part do we play in your plan of salvation and what can we accomplish and contribute to its furtherance. So give us the strength, the inspiration, and the courage to step out in faith to follow you wherever you ask us to go. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.